for you joining us since the start. Can I add my uh, welcomes to, to Callum? It's lovely uh, to see you with us here tonight. And it's a good day to join us. We're, it's the very first of a new series in the book of Micah, uh, in the Listen Up series. And um, I hope tonight will be useful. It is a complicated passage, isn't it? You may have noticed that as, as Ruth was reading it, astonishingly well. Um, but it is complicated. So you'll need, please, you'll need to have your Bibles open on page 930. And uh, I'd love it if you could follow along with me uh, as I'm speaking through it. You need to check that what I'm saying is what God has said. And uh, this little blue outline will give you an idea of where we're going over the next few moments. And um, that'll no doubt be helpful to you if you're, if you're making notes. When we're settled, let me lead us in prayer. Lord, be our vision. Be supreme in our heart. Bid every rival give way and depart. That's our prayer, Lord. Please, by your spirit, shine your light on whatever our rivals, uh, your rivals might be in our hearts. Help us to love you more as a result of what Micah shares with us to now. In Jesus' name, amen. About nine years ago, I found myself on a, on a shopping trip with Hannah's family. We, I don't think, as I recall, I don't think we're yet married. I don't think we're even yet engaged. We're just going out. And I ended up on a shopping trip with her entire family in Oxford. And usually when everything happens in shop, whole family shopping trips, the girls pair off and they go to all the sort of the girls' shops. And it was just me and her dad, uh, slightly awkward, intense, just me and him to do the man shops. And um, uh, <laughs> he's rather surprised me, though. He took us to a really posh jeweler's. I thought, oh dear, this, is, this, this doesn't bode well. Maybe he's trying to sort of drop some rather unsubtle hints. Um, but entering into this jeweler's, I think it, his, his 30th wedding anniversary is coming up, and he wanted to um, commission a special necklace for, for his wife. And uh, the jeweler's, really posh jeweler's in, in, in Oxford, the jeweler had this lovely desk, and, and he laid out this, this dark black cloth. And on this dark black cloth, he, he pulled out all these diamonds and rubies and, and sapphires. And... Uh, and the purpose of that was because he knew that against that dark background, he knew those jewels would pick up the light and they, they would shine all the more brightly. I don't know how you feel about the prospect of studying Micah this term. Having had that reading, you might fear it's going to be overly complicated, um, lots of unpronounceable place names. You might fear it's going to be completely irrelevant uh, to our 21st century London lives. But most of all, you might suspect that it's going to be all rather depressing. I mean, just look at the NIV subtitles, the editor's titles in, in chapter 1. We have judgment against Samaria and Jerusalem. We have weeping and mourning. I mean, golly, really? It's a cold January evening. Can't we have something a little bit more, you know, a little bit more uplifting? Do we have to have this stuff about judgment and idolatry? Surely that's the sort of message the unbelieving world out there needs to, hear, needs to hear, but we just want the good news. Can't we just have the good news? But in God's infinite wisdom, Micah is exactly what we need to hear. We're told in verse 1 of chapter 1, this is the word of the Lord, thanks be to God. He's given us this, this dark, depressing passage because if you like, it's, it's, it's the true backdrop against which the jewel of the gospel really, really shines. I don't know. If you feel in your heart that the good news of Jesus is somewhat 
lost its sparkle. No longer seems as precious to you as perhaps it once did a few years ago. Perhaps the reason is because you've lifted it off that dark cloth and uh, will only appreciate how beautiful, how precious our salvation is if we see it rightly against the darkness of our sin and the judgment that it deserves. So actually, this book, Micah, it couldn't be more relevant for us. Because about their situation then, it wasn't so very different from ours here today. It was a very, very scary time to be a believer. Just like today, idolatrous nations violently opposed God's people. Assyria was the superpower of the day, and they threatened to invade at any moment. People feared for the future of the church. Indeed, just like today, God's people, they weren't in the best shape. We had the northern kingdom of Israel. They'd largely turned themselves over to other gods. They stopped worshipping Yahweh, really. And now the southern kingdom of Judah, they're starting to do the same. So Micah speaks to these two capital cities, the capital city of the north of Israel, which is called Samaria, and the capital city of Judah, which is Jerusalem. He speaks to these two cities and he has a vision for them. They're not going to want to hear this vision, but they need to hear this vision. But unusually, he begins not by addressing them, he begins by addressing the surrounding unbelieving nations. And this is our first point you'll see on your handouts. The Lord will crush idolatrous nations. Look down with me at verse 2, if you'd be so kind, in your Bibles. Verse 2 begins like this. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth, and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him, and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down a slope. At Christmas we celebrated, didn't we, when God entered our world to save. But these verses refer to when God will come down to judge. The poetry describes a legal scene. The the sovereign Lord is is the prosecutor. The nations are in the dock. And their crime is idolatry. Idolatry, it might not be immediately obvious to us from these verses, but but notice there in verse 3 when when it says the Lord's coming down to tread the high places of the earth. That that phrase, high places, it it refers to locations of idol worship. See, in those days, they used to build shrines and, and temples atop every sort of green hill, the little sort of grassy knoll at the top. There, people would bow down to their gods, to their pieces of wood and stone, Because they thought that up there in the high places, they were closer to the gods. They they thought there their prayers might be answered. And this is offensive to God. The reason these beliefs are so offensive to him is because he alone is creator. He alone is the author of every single good thing. And he gave us everything we have. And and yet instead of worshipping him the true and living God, people have bowed down to little bits of wood and stone, pathetic man-made imitations of the divine. 
Now, it won't, it won't win me many friends saying this, I don't expect, but we see idolatry still today. They don't just think idolatry is people bowing down to statues and stuff like that, not at all. We still, false, we still see false worship everywhere. Any, any religion, any worldview, which is not centered on the triune God of the Bible, it is idolatry. Which means Hinduism is idolatry. Islam is idolatry. Secular humanism is idolatry. Now this might be quite hard for us to hear because we all know lovely people. We all have friends who are so sincere, aren't they? They're so sincere in their faith. How can it be so wrong? Well, it was Spurgeon, I think, he said this. He said that if you sincerely drink poison, it'll still kill you. If you sincerely believe a lie, you will suffer the consequences. You must not only be sincere, you must also be right. Our friends' idols, they might promise them stability, purpose, security. But the tragedy is that they will not deliver on those promises. The imagery here in verses 3 and 4, I think, it, I think they challenge our domesticated view of God. On the day when he comes down to judge the earth in blazing holiness, he'll be like a blowtorch to a lump of butter. Those once immovable objects, immovable objects like mountains, will just melt away before him. Those high places will become low places. Idols will be trodden underfoot like grapes in a wine press along with all who bow down to them. In 2011, a British man called Michael Cohen was on a business trip in Cape Town. And being a Brit, and um, their summer being our winter, he, he wanted to hit the beach. And um, so he went to a very nice beach, beach called Fishhook Bay. I don't know if you've ever been to Fishhook Bay. Lovely beach. But upon arrival, he was really disappointed because all around him were these glaring red signs saying, warning, do not swim, great white sharks. And he was gutted. He was like, oh, what, really? But, but he dismissed these signs. They're just there to spoil his fun. So he started stripping off, putting, putting down to his swimmers. And, and people walking past him said, what are you doing? There, there are sharks seen here just 90 minutes ago. You idiot. Don't, don't go in the water. He said, no, no, it's fine, it's fine. These sort of things only happen to other people. And uh, three minutes later, Michael was airlifted away, having lost both his legs. I think when we're faced with passages like this, We've got to ask ourselves, is this needless scaremongering? Is God just here to spoil our fun? Or is this a loving warning from a God who does not want us to face judgment? If you're here today and you're, you're not trusting in Jesus, if he is not your Lord and Saviour, please do what Micah says. Verse 2, hear. Hear the warning. Verse 3, look. Look at what's coming. And please act before it's too late. Because judgment is coming on idolatrous nations. There's a church in the States. It's always in the States, isn't it? Where um, they've got a little screen at the back. You'd imagine it on the, on the balcony up there. A little thin screen. And the purpose of this screen is for the congregation to text in live feedback to the preacher. So imagine you, you, you could have, um, you, even now, you can have your phones out and texting. Yeah, I heard that diamond illustration before. 
point, uh, point one was a bit depressing. Don't really like that. You know, you can, uh, you, and I'd, I'd have that feedback live. Well, you can imagine that as, as, it, as Mike has been preaching the first four verses, he would have been getting at this point only thumbs up. People would have loved what Micah was saying. This was a time when a pagan superpower of Assyria was breathing down their neck. Israel in the north and Judah in the south, they would have rejoiced to know that God is going to crush these pagan idolaters. Preach it, brother, they would have cried. Go for it, Micah. We love this message. But Micah's very clever. He's just reeling them in. Because the coming judgment, it's not just for the idolaters out there. Our second point the Lord will expose idolatrous Israel. Look down at verse 5 with me. Verse 5. All this, that is all this coming judgment, is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Micah now focuses his attention on the capital cities of the north and south, Samaria and Israel, Jerusalem and Judah. Because if you like, they're the the root cause of his people's sin. If you like, they're they're patient zero in an idolatry epidemic. They were the birthplace of covenant transgression. They have become high places where idolatry is rife. But in the rest of this section, Micah focuses his attention on, on Israel's capital, on Samaria. Now, anyone back then in Micah's day would have been able to describe Samaria to you. It was a very, very secure city, very high up in the mountains, nearly impregnable to any invader. It was secure. It was a cultured city. We know from archaeology, it was beautiful palaces, uh, dress stones. It was, it, was a, it was a beautiful, cultured city. And it was a religious city. Yahweh was worshipped, but, but so were a plentitude of other gods. There are all these fertility cults and, and temple prostitutes where people would give gold and, and, and then have sex with women and, and then do their worship and, and hopefully get good crops in return. It was a religious city. But soon, God was going to expose Israel's capital for what it really was. Just look at the judgment there in verse 6. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble a place of planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire and I'll destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. These verses describe exactly what happened when Assyria invaded Samaria in 722 BC. See, on that day, all her secure fortifications counted for nothing. On that day, all her culture and her beauty counted for nothing. On that day, her many gods counted for nothing. It's ironic that all that gold and silver crewed by temple prostitutes In the end, it was just melted down and used by the Assyrians to worship their own gods. Poetic justice. The living God who brought this destruction upon them, he gave them very fair warning. See, way back in the the time of Moses, you might remember, God had uh, redeemed Israel out of slavery. He was their loving God. He'd give them everything they have. And, And he gave them a law. It's right there behind me. The first two commands, they couldn't be clearer, could they? 
I am the Lord thy God, thou shalt have no other gods but me. The second command, thou shalt not make to thyself anything, any graven image, nor the likes of anything that is on heaven or earth below, and so on. No God but me and no idols. Very simple. I've given you everything you need. I've redeemed you. I've given you a lamb. Just, just worship me. But like Michael Cohen on Fishhook Bay, they didn't listen. Gladys Elwood was a British missionary in China in the 1930s and 40s. She's a hero, really. You should read her biography. It's a, she did a remarkable work amongst um, orphanages in China and, uh, and also doing sort of prison reform in that country. But in 1938, she felt a very strong conviction to return to the UK. You might think that's quite odd. Surely China needs the gospel more. And apparently the story goes something like this. A Chinese student showed her an English newspaper and he said to her, this England which sent you with the good news of Jesus, they must be worshipping other gods now. So why do you say that? Asked Gladys. Well, your papers are full of sportsmen and film stars and gossip. There's no mention of Jesus. What happened? What happened indeed? Eighty years later, and the spiritual health of our nation looks even worse, doesn't it? We're seeing churches in the UK emptying at an alarming rate. We're seeing our buildings being turned into museums, trendy apartments, even mosques. And just as with Israel, it seems as if the root cause of that is apostasy, is abandoning the faith. A certain portion of our national church thinks the best way for us to witness to the world is for us to just be like the world to merge our message and our morality so that we just fit in with everyone around us, that we don't look so different, to bow down to the world's idols as well as worshipping Yahweh, the Lord. It's interesting, a couple of months ago, the Church of England released a whole new host of statistics which showed that churches which are declining are almost always the ones which have sold out theologically, who have abandoned the faith. Just listen to some of these stats. Only 19% of ministers from declining churches read their Bibles every day, compared to 71% from growing churches. Only 50% of ministers from declining churches believe in Jesus' bodily resurrection from the dead. 56%. Compared to 93% of clergy from growing churches. Only 50% of ministers from declining churches think it's important to call unbelievers to turn to Jesus for salvation. 50% compared to 100% from growing churches. So the lesson we can learn from the northern kingdom of Israel is that our holy God will not tolerate religious syncretism. He won't tolerate us bowing down to the gods of our age as well as him. If we sell out, then we're not fit for purpose, and God will see fit to remove us. Judgment is coming, an idolatrous Israel. Now again, imagine Micah's screen at the back of his church. He's got a little uh, feedback form going on. Again, the people who are listening to this sermon love it. Micah is preaching in Jerusalem in the southern kingdom and they're thinking yeah preach your brother those apostates in the north they deserve what's coming to them they're an awful bunch they are we alone are the faithful few we're the righteous remnant yes we're, we're, we're the faithful lot preach your brother keep on going amen amen but again Micah's very clever 
He's just reeling them in. Our third point. The Lord will exile idolatrous Judah. Look down at verse 8. Because of this, I will weep and wail. I will go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For Samaria's wound is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. See, his listeners might have been celebrating, but Micah is certainly not celebrating the destruction of the northern kingdom. Far from it. He's in utter distress. He's in turmoil. Because he knows that the very same disease has begun to infect even Judah. Which means they deserve God's judgment too. And to get this point across, Micah goes all method actor on them. You know what method acting is? That's when people kind of, like Dustin Hoffman and, and the like, they sort of embody their, their, sort of their character for a whole season of time. They, they embody their message. And that's what Micah does here. He howls and he moans like an animal you'd find out in the wilderness. Why? Because that's exactly where Judah's going to be taken. Exiled out to the wilderness. He, he walks about stark naked. Imagine that, a preacher, stark naked and barefoot. Why? Because that's what's going to happen to Judah as prisoners of war, naked and barefoot, out of their land. Yes, exile is coming for Judah. And the poem in verses 10 to 15, it describes the very war path that Assyria will take as they invade. You'll notice on the, on the back of your handout, I'll put a, a map there for you uh, just to have a, have a look at. Just, just turn over with me and have a, have a, have a glance at that. It'll, it'll help us in this next bit. Um, just look at that enlarged box at the bottom showing, showing Judah in the south there. Just along the northern edge of that box, there's a large mountain range, which meant that any invading force trying to, trying to hit Jerusalem in the top right-hand corner they need to go through all of the outlying towns from Shafir in the, in the, uh, in the west there, through Gath, Morasheth, Gath, Lachish, Maresha, Askib, Adul, and Bethlehem, Jerusalem. See, any invader had to go through those towns in order to get to Jerusalem. So this poem, which we're going to come to now, it describes the war path, the countdown to destruction, if you like. But much more than that, it also exposes the reason for the coming destruction. If you look down in your Bibles again, you'll notice that each of these place names, which are really difficult to pronounce, each of them has a little footnote next to them. So each of them have a, have, have a double meaning. Often the Hebrew words often have a double meaning. And Micah has been very clever here in, in this next section. As the, as the towns are being destroyed, their, their meanings ironically pick up the very reason why they're being destroyed. And we don't have time to look at all of them, so forgive me if we just uh, glance at a couple. Uh, read, read with me verse 11. It says this. Pass on in nakedness and shame, you who live in Shafir. Those who live in Zanan will not come out. Beth Ezel is in mourning. Its protection is taken from you. Let's look at Shafir first. Shafir, we might call beauty town. Beauty town. Here was a place which took great pride in its physical appearance. Beauty it is, of course, a good thing, isn't it? It's a good thing. But these guys made it a God thing. And we often do the same, don't we? How often do we locate our value 
in our outward appearance. The amount of time and energy we invest in looking good, the clothes we buy, our fitness. and We want people to think well of us. And we, we care so much about what people think of us and comparatively so little about what God thinks of us. We pursue beauty at the expense of holiness. We accrue treasures on earth, but not so much treasures in heaven. Friends, we're idolaters of beauty. So, like Shafir, we deserve to pass on in nakedness and shame. We're Michael Zanan, marching forth town, going forth town. Here was a place which took great pride in its security. Security, again, it's, it's a good thing, isn't it? It's good to feel secure. But, but Zanan had turned that good thing into a God thing. And so often we do the same. We, we locate our security in our job in our performance, in our relationships or not. We invest in these things at a weight which they can't possibly bear. And we expect these things to somehow fulfill us, to somehow satisfy us, to somehow save us. But on the day of judgment, if there are security, they're going to provide no security at all. Indeed, as the people of Beth Ezel discovered, or taking away town discovered, they'll provide no protection. All those false securities will be stripped away and will be left bare. Look at verse 13. Let's let's go to Lachish. Verse 13. You who live in Lachish, harness the team to the chariot. You were the beginning of sin to the daughter Zion. For the transgressions of Israel were found in you. We might call Lachish power town or technology town. It was a place which was very, very famous for its military hardware, not tanks and missiles and fighter jets. They didn't have those back then. No, they had the top-of-the-range chariots. Lachish was famous for its horses and for its chariots. And so, if you like, uh, they were Judah's very best defensive system. Lachish was their Star Wars network of anti-missile defense. Lachish was their best defense. And indeed, it was very difficult for Assyria to conquer Lachish. If you hop down the road this week to the British Library, um, to the British Museum, it's at King's Cross, it's free, you can go in there. There's an entire room devoted to the fall of Lachish. I think some time ago we went in, uh, we sort of went into a, um, I think it's, they were taken out of Sennacherib's palace in Assyria. And there's a room about this size, which all along the side, about, about 21 metres, it describes the fall of Lachish in the stone reliefs. It was, a, it was an amazing town for Assyria to take. But oh, But in the end, it did fall. All of its power, all of its military might, and it fell. Why? Because it was the first of Judah's town to bow to Israel's gods. Like Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, it seems, caught the disease of idolatry off her. So often we're we're tempted to think our power and our wealth and our, our righteousness, maybe our positions in church... So easily we think they'll somehow protect us on the day of judgment. That on that day when we meet our judge with just a little bit of fast talking, a little bit of fancy footwork, we'll get off fine. There's a certain, um, certain lie which gamblers tell themselves, gambling addicts tell themselves. It's called the sunk cost fallacy. If any of you heard of this, the sunk cost fallacy. Imagine a blackjack player sitting at his table, at the blackjack table, and he's already lost an incredible amount of money. But he's telling himself, well, I've invested so much already, 
I've got to keep paying in. I've got, I've got to keep going because then eventually I'll get the payback. It's got a sunk cost fallacy. And we do the same thing, don't we? Often we're so emotionally, financially invested in our idols that it's incredibly costly and painful for us just to walk away from that table. We keep throwing more and more at them, hoping against hope that one day they'll pay off, that one day we'll feel satisfied. Friends, learn from Maroth in verse 12, bitter town. They will bring no relief, only bitterness. Learn from Akzib in verse 14, deception town. Don't be deceived. You see, the big point of this passage is this. It's not just the non-Christian idolaters out there who deserve this coming judgment. It isn't just the apostate churches of our land who deserve this coming judgment. No, it's us. It's us. It's here. It's me. It's you. We deserve this judgment. So what should we do? Well, I've got two bullet point applications for us. Firstly, we must repent with action. Look down at verse 16. This is how Micah closes this section. Verse 16. Shave your heads in mourning. For the children in whom you delight, make yourself as bald as the vulture. For they, your children, will go from you into exile. Micah's calling on Jerusalem, the one city which by God's grace did not fall to Assyria. He calls on Jerusalem to mourn for her children these lost towns of Judah. And he calls on her to repent. I think we too, St. John's Downshire Hill, we need to repent of our idolatry. Not just with our minds, or yes, we academically assent to these truths, but with action. Micah says, Jerusalem should shave their heads, make themselves bald. That that was a a practical forsaking, if you like, of their beauty. A practical forsaking of their power and possessions. A a practical demonstration of total dependence on God. It's action. So think about it. What, What action will you take in response to Micah's message? What practical steps you need to take to stop yourself believing that sunk cost fallacy? Endlessly investing in those idols which you think will satisfy you, you think will secure you, you think will save you, but they won't. What do you need to do? We must repent with action. But finally, we've, we've got to find a cure. We need a cure. I'm aware there's very little good news in this passage. No one's smiling at me throughout most of this talk. It's, most of your faces are incredibly glum. And... I won't apologize for that because that's the point. Micah wants to show us just how incurable our wound is. He wants to show us just how far the infection of idolatry has spread. It's not just them out there, it's us in here. He wants me and he wants you to see how dark the cloth is. Because then he wants us to see how beautiful that diamond is. How gleaming our Saviour is. How wonderful the Lord Jesus Christ is. Because at the Lord's first coming, the Lord came down from his dwelling place. And he came to cure the incurable. 
He came not for the healthy, but for the sick. And Micah lamented over Jerusalem. Jesus did the same, but he didn't just lament over Jerusalem. More than that, he came and bled for her. He came to cleanse her from all her uncleanness. He came to wash us clean. Friends, don't look to yourselves for the solution. Don't think you can do it. You can't. Look at him. Seeing your darkness, grasp hold of that diamond. And please come back next week, because next week we're actually going to hear the good news. And let's pray. Father God, thank you for this reality check. Thank you for Micah. Thank you that over the last uh, 20 minutes or so, we've been challenged, that you've exposed our idolatry and the utter futility of it. Lord, you've been so good to us and we've been so wicked in response. Have mercy, Lord. Help us to do the equivalent of shaving our heads taking practical action. And Lord, give us greater joy in our redemption in Christ, we pray in his name.